Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Today's podcast is sponsored by one of our favorite products, Almond Cow. We've been using it for well over a year, and I say we, mostly my husband, Mark, who is mooing. Honey, what are your thoughts about Almond Cow? <laughs> this is the Moo Man. He's back. <laughs> I love the Almond Cow because we know how great it is. Anything that you could, can make a plant-based milk with, you're set. And I just have it. I don't need to make, make that much. It's just sitting in the pantry. And then when we're ready... I just make it. It takes a minute. Is it? It tastes so good. It tastes so good. And for those of you who are thinking about it, let me tell you why. There, there are no added preservatives, any kind of artificial stuff. You put in it what you want. You can sweeten it to your taste. It is so easy to make, so easy to clean up, and it's pure gold. It really is. And they give you a lot of recipes on the Almond Cow website. You have the recipe, so you don't have to think, you don't have to go anywhere to find it. It's there for you. Yes, we love it so much. So if you're interested in getting your own, go check out the link or just go to their site, almondcal.co, and you can use code LARA, L-A-R-A, for extra savings. Go get yourself one and have fun. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I'm really lucky to have a returning friend, another physical therapist, Rick Olderman, who's been on the podcast before. He is a sports and orthopedic PT with more than 25 years experience, specializing in helping people with chronic pain experience a pain-free life. So he returns today to talk about his new book. This book is Solving the Pain Puzzle. And Rick and I have so much in common because we really look at not just where the pain is being experienced, but at the, all the systems in the body that might be contributing to that imbalance that shows up in pain. And chronic pain is absolutely treatable. It is really hard when people feel like they can't um, go on or they can't find anyone to help them. And so Rick is going to give you some tips. And as always, check out Lit Daily because we have lots of Lots of classes where we educate you about your body and how to find more balance for your breathing, for your movement. And these are key ingredients to keeping you healthy and happy. So enjoy my conversation with Rick. 
Welcome back, Rick. So happy to have you back on. We've been planning this for a while, and now we have even more to talk about. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Laura. So you, as another physical therapist, have not only written books and solutions, you know, you're fixing all the different issues, but now you've come up with this other book uh, that's specific about pain, which is, I think it's always a hot topic, but it definitely is is surfacing in a new way because people are understanding pain as this multifactorial thing. So can you first just start off and like if somebody says to you, the book is about pain, what is, how do you define pain? Yeah, well, uh, pain is, a, is uh, an indicator from your body that something is wrong now. So uh, there's no special, <laughs> we all know what pain is, but uh, I, you know, in, in medicine, we tend to start categorizing like acute pain is different than chronic pain. And uh, I've learned that I believe a lot of chronic pain is just recurring acute issues that haven't been solved yet. And once we solve those issues, that chronic pain will go away. So in your experience and in the book, you might go over this, but how much uh, of pain is like the source of it from biomechanics or habits or um, kind of faulty mechanics versus something that is more nervous system driven. And all, those are there's a lot of crossover, but what do you tend to see as the origin of the pain? Well, uh, so my approach it combines biomechanics, fascial concepts, as well as neurological tension patterns. So in my experience, uh, almost all chronic pain that I see is usually are usually patients who have failed everywhere else, and it's because the neurological aspect of of that is driving the pattern of dysfunction hasn't been addressed yet. Well, as well as just the simple biomechanics, because as as you know, in physical therapy, we're leaning more towards manual techniques, manipulations, and soft tissue work, and all that kind of stuff. And I've, I really feel that to, to physical therapy's detriment, that we're moving away from more biomechanical principles and understanding how the body operates. And this is why I believe that we have so much chronic pain is because we're, we don't understand this. So how we move sets up tension patterns in our bodies. And Thomas Myers identified, uh, he, he's a researcher in fascia and fascia is connective tissue in the body. And he identified, uh, super highways of fascia that basically run from the top of your head to the bottom of your foot. And these run along your back, along your side, along your front and so forth. Well, uh, what I think is happening is that based how we're moving, we are increasing neurological input into those fascial patterns that are causing dysfunction in our body. And therefore you can't escape the neurological aspect of, of this. Now, it, it all sounds really complicated, but actually it's quite simple because understanding what these patterns are and how our movement mechanics are triggering those and re-triggering them, sim solutions become very simple uh, because one small change can affect the whole fascial pattern or whole neurological pattern or whole, the whole biomechanical pattern, all sorts of things. So let's give you an example and that'll help as well because you know, what we see a lot of and what I hear a lot of as a physical therapist is, oh, I have this pain that won't go away, for instance, in the front of my hip. 
what stretch can I do? And it's always kind of this like, unfortunately, there's not a cookie, you know, there's just not like a, a cookie cutter response. Like I, you don't stretch that. We have to figure out why that is where you're feeling the pain. So what are some things just based on that? What would you, if you had somebody come in, even if you were doing it uh, virtually, what what are the kind of steps you would look at to see like why that area is the area that's experiencing it, but probably isn't the actual area that's the problem? Yeah, this is a great example of kind of my approach is is what I call a systems approach as opposed to this component thinking that most people are used to being treated as. And and your question, you know, says just that. What kind of stretch can I do to solve this pain right here in the front of well, that's a component kind of approach to understanding what's going on. So the most common issue that's going on with most hip pain, and folks, if you're listening at home, you know, I'm I'm holding up the skeleton now. So if Laura, if you're gonna post this on YouTube, this will be, be on be YouTube. Good. Yep. Yeah. So the most common issue that causes most hip pain is something called an anterior femoral glide syndrome. And what that means is that the femur head is gliding forward in the hip socket excessively. And the primary, and so when that happens, it will pinch tissues in the front of the hip. It will also contribute to bursitis because the IT band is coming down over the lateral part of that hip. And so now it's got uh, uh, a unique rubbing sensation on that bursa that's causing it to become inflamed. It can also cause piriformis syndrome in the back, and it can also cause uh, uh, what is often diagnosed as just hip arthritis, this global hip pain. So really, the, so solving the anterior femoral glide syndrome can solve a whole bunch of different types of complaints that people may have been told, oh, you've got a bursitis. Oh, you've got piriformis syndrome. Oh, you've got you know the, a groin strain in the front or things like that. When in reality, it's all due to the same problem, which is an anterior femoral glide syndrome. So why is the anterior femoral glide syndrome happening? Well, it's because the butt muscle is the primary controller of the hip bone in the hip socket. When the butt muscle doesn't work, then the small, and this is the way it works all over the body. When the large, big muscles aren't working, the little tiny, smaller muscles have to do more work. They get really irritated. So you have to get the butt muscle to start working. Well, then why isn't the butt muscle working? And usually it's due to the walking pattern. And specifically what's going on with the walking pattern is that the knees are locking. And so uh, when that's happening, and why are the knees locking? Well, it's because when you walk, you're setting your foot in front of you and your body is behind you at foot strike. Well, when that happens, that heel touches the ground, immediately the knee will lock, which turns off all of these primary pelvic and lower body muscles. And so now they're off as your body is continuing forward over the foot. Well, uh, that's exactly when the butt muscle is needed the most. It's when your body is over the foot. So by changing a gait pattern to help turn on the butt muscle, it will then stop the anterior femoral glide syndrome and actually pull it back. It actually happens quite quickly that you can pull this thing back in the socket once you get the butt muscle working well. So, uh, uh, you know, that's basically And can you just explain approach. a little bit, like, Pure because people people that's the other hot but piriformis they they feel yeah. there's pain there and so there's lots of stretching lots of stretching and oh, it's yeah. like actually that poor guy just doesn't need to work as hard because it's trying to stabilize and it's much smaller doing it and it's not as yeah. effective as the glute max is and the glute right. medius yeah I refer to the pure the butt muscle as the hand muscle 
and the piriformis as the pinky muscle. Mm, well, I wouldn't want my pinky to be doing the work all day long. I want my hand to be doing that work. And so, yeah, you can foam roller it. You can dry needle it. You can do acupuncture to it. You can do lunges. You can do squats. You can do all sorts of things. But if you don't fix the gait pattern and the knee locking habit that you've created that's turning off the whole system, you're just doomed to rinse and repeat for the rest of your life. Right, because the gait pattern is going to show up in your squats, right? If you're used to not using your glutes there, you're the... The femoral head will glide forward. Uh, you go into your low back more. You're not using your glutes that well, and it and you know so you it's all the movements become habitually tuned into that particular patterning, and so everything's getting reinforced. But it's also easy to change it if you if you if you're aware that it's not um, like you got to stretch this. It's it's it's, it's a multi prong approach. So when you yeah. work with somebody like that, do you work with them like standing? Do you work with them on the ground? Do you work with them in gait or all of the above? Yeah. So let me address that first part of what you commented on is that the squatting and lunging will may certainly turn on the butt, right? Which is what we're after. But however, it's turning it on in a way that's uh, not natural. So if we, if we walked in a squat, then maybe that would be a nice natural way of doing things. And you can turn on the butt and and you're it's not that your butt is weak. It's that you're not turning it on and using it when you're walking and standing. So you can do all a million squats a day and a million lunges a day, but because your that butt is turn, only only turning on when the hip joint is flexed like 90 degrees or something, that doesn't translate to when the hip joint is only flexed 10 degrees, which is when what's happening when we're walking. So this is why a lot of people who could do you know, are told to do a million squats, they still have piriformis syndrome because they haven't been been fixing the gait pattern. So when we walk, our hip and knees are flexing 10 to 20 degrees. Well, that, you know, but when you're squatting, it's bent 50 degrees or 90 degrees. So that's not carrying over into this part up here. So uh, I don't do, I don't have people do squats. I don't have people do lunges because that's not fixing the functional reason why everything is broken. So I immediately teach them very easily how to walk, to turn on the glutes. First, we test it to make sure it's not turning on. And then I show them how to turn it on. And by the time, you know, in 10 minutes, people have got it. So, so how, do you, it, how do you do that? How do oh, you sure, teach somebody? Really, yeah, yeah. It's really easy. So, uh, so what I first have them do is they, I have them put their hands on their butt muscles. All right. Yeah. So folks at home, stand up and do this because this is a really useful test. So you got, you got your fingers right in the meat of your butt, right where that you're told that piriformis, syndrome, piriformis muscle is. That's where I want your fingertips, digging in. Now, pinch both of your butt cheeks together and you'll feel there's your maximum contraction of your glute muscles, all right? Now relax them completely and now walk around the, the room five, 10 steps and see if your butt muscles are turning on at all. Keep your fingers right on that area of your butt. Most of you listening will say, oh no, it's like dead silent, right? <laughs> so, so, and you're absolutely right. And this is the problem. So how do we get that to turn on? Well, I, I have two methods. So keep your hands right on the, on the butt muscles there. And now walk around the room on your tippy toes. And you'll notice that you feel something getting firm underneath your fingertips now. And it's not that maximum gluteal contraction. We don't need a maximal gluteal contraction when we're walking. 
we need just something to turn on. And so what I'm looking for is like a five or 10% activation of that glute, right? So we're walking around on our tippy toes. You should feel that there's a firmness under each fingertip with each foot strike that you take, right? So right foot hits down, you feel the right butt. Left foot hits down, you feel the left butt. And now, now that you feel that, now slowly lower your heels back down. And you'll notice that your butt muscles continue to fire just as they did when your heels were up. Because what you've done is you've corrected the mechanics of your walking pattern. All right. So what you would do throughout the day is when you're walking out in public or at home or wherever, just check and make sure your butt muscles are, are turned on. If they're not, go up on your tippy toes for three to five steps, get them to turn on. That will adjust your mechanics of your gait pattern to turn them on even when your heels are low. That may turn off again in 10 steps. It may turn off again in 100 steps. But initially when you do this, it'll probably turn off more soon because you haven't fixed the habits that are turning it off. But as you do this more and more, your body will adopt the better walking pattern and it will stay on longer and longer to the point probably within a few days or a week, you don't have to do this at all. And what is happening when you're coming into that plantar flexion, that coming on the tippy toes that, sure. that, that gets the glute to all of a sudden respond? Yeah. So what's going on is that uh, there, are, there are two critical things that are happening here. One is that you'll notice that when you're walking on your tippy toes, it is impossible for your foot to land in front of your body. So every step of the way, your body is aligned over the foot at foot strike, which is exactly the moment that you need the most stabilization for your hip joint, knee joint, back, pelvis, all that kind of stuff. So it's forcing your body to be over the foot at, at foot strike. That's critical. The second thing is, you'll notice, it is impossible for you to lock your knee when you're walking on your tippy toes. So those are the two things that are allowing the butt to turn on naturally. And that's what we're missing with most of our gait patterns. Often it's because of our shoe wear. When we have uh, shoes that we wear with thick heels on them, it allows us to send that foot out in front of us and strike harder on that heel which is then automatically, boom, snapping that knee back, and we've lost it at that point. So two things there. One is, would you say that people should maybe try and take shorter strides when they're walking so that they don't have that instinct? And the second is, what would be the recommendations for shoes? Yeah, so initially, you'll notice that you will have to take shorter strides. Mm -hmm. However, I mean, I can take four foot long strides with my butt turning on. So once you understand and learn how to, because what has to happen is if your foot is used to coming out in front of your pelvis, your pelvis is not used to, oh, to following that foot. And so the back leg has to open, that, that hip joint and pelvic area has to open up to allow the whole body to come forward with the advancing leg. That's a reversal of how you've been doing it. You've been advancing the first leg, which requires almost no pelvic, you know, mobility. And instead, uh, and that's what's keeping all of this, you know, isolated and not working. So initially your, your foot strike will have to be shorter, but you'll learn very quickly. Oh yeah, I can take really long steps and my butt is still turning on. So that's a good point. Now, the, in terms of shoe wear, um, I, I really don't care what shoe wear people wear as long as they walk correctly because your butt will turn on if you're walking correctly, regardless of whether you're in high heels or you're in minimalist shoes. The, the answer is to fix the gait pattern rather than the shoe. Yeah, you can wear a zero drop shoe that will help, you know, that will help you 
not heel strike as much, but really ultimately you have to change the behavior. Hmm, I love that. Um, so I have some questions that people wrote in and because I know in your book you have case studies of, of, of people that have come to you with pain and, and the process that you went through to help them. And so there might be some crossover from some of these questions with what you have. So uh, some of these are just about pain themselves. So one person asked, what is the link between chronic pain and the nervous system? And you were starting to talk a little bit about that in the very beginning, but maybe you can e expand. Well, the nervous system is how we, you know, sense and move our body. So we need both our sensory aspect as well as our motor planning aspect. And those are like, if, if we're looking at uh, spinal pathways, sensory pathways go up to the brain to carry that sensation information and motor pathways come down from the brain, okay? So if you, you can't have motor pathways without some way to sense what's going on in your body. So it's a hand in glove kind of thing because you have to be able to modify how you're moving. So on a very gross sense, that's, you know, the nervous and of course your brain is the processing center, right? That is getting this information, adjusting the plan. And then, you know, it goes, then you send out that message down to your body. So that is the, in a gr very, very gross sense, <laughs> that's how <laughs> we're, we're kind of built. However, what I find is that uh, because of our movement patterns, if we're creating strain patterns in our bodies because of how we're using our bodies, then from a fascial standpoint, what happens is we tend to lay down a certain type of uh, fascia. Uh, it called, it's a myofibroblast. Myo meaning muscle. It has up to four times the contractile ability of normal fascial uh, cells. And so these things are laid down in areas of more mechanical stress. Why are you having mechanical stress? Because you're not using your body correctly, right? So now we have a concentration of contracting fascial uh, bodies there or cells. And then what's interesting about the myofibroblasts is that they do not respond to neurological input though. Mm. They respond to uh, a hormone-like thing that circulates in our bloodstream called a cytokine. It's transforming growth factor beta one. So that cytokine is released from our brain under moments of stress, right? If we're under stress, tension, if we deal with anxiety, depression, all sorts of things like that, uh, then our body, our brain starts to release, cause the release of this cytokine to circulate in our blood like a hormone, and it finds these myofibroblast areas and causes them to contract to stabilize. So this is one of the reasons why when we're under stress, uh, I believe this is why uh, we feel pain in certain areas of our body because it's triggering the contraction pattern of an already uh, mechanically disadvantaged and vulnerable area that we've laid down these myofibroblasts to. Wow. So I, I know I've gotten this question a lot and this, these um, that kind of laying down of that extra fascial connection, it's, like, it's very fibrotic. So one area is like, in the upper T-spine, lower cervical spine, when people's head is forward a lot, um, they're, they're, they'll talk about being a trigger point or like a little a hump. And it's this area that's been stressed because of the position of the head and the, the, the shoulder girdle and, and all of that, the weight of the head forward has caused this kind of convergence of these different uh, fascial lines to have to kind of hold it like reins. And then it gets 
because of the strain there, like you said, there's more tissue laid down. So somebody's feeling pain there. Well, what do they do, A, to, to, obviously, I'm going to say posture, but there's other things too, but actually to help get rid of that kind of like humpy fibrotic state? Yeah, well, um, and it sounds like you're describing a dowager's hump. Is that correct? Yeah, it's similar, but it's not quite as it's not pronounced. I mean, this is this is not as pronounced, and it's on young yeah. people. We think of dowagers right. as being a little older because of long, de you know, decades yeah. long. I think it's more because of so much of technology, and there's I've seen this um, more and more, and a lot of chronic pain there. It's like and 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 the sequela from that, you know, headaches and et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a really cool video. I solved a fairly pronounced hours or something in about 30 seconds by changing posture. Amazing. So it's, it's a really fun video. But anyway, so there's what's going on with, with that strain pattern. So the interesting point that you're making is that uh, if these myofibroblasts are laid down in areas of mechanical stress in our bodies, when our spinal curves are in transition to a different curve, are stress points where mm -hmm. myofibroblasts are then laid down. So the stress point from the lordotic curve of the neck bones to the kyphotic curve of the thoracic area is a stress point. Another one is when the th thoracic curve of the stress area changes to the lumbar curve. And then also, once again, when the lumbar curve is changing to the sacral curve, all right? So these are automatically, you know, easy, you know, that's where our stress point is going to be. So what's going on here? I, I I mean, while the forward head may be a contributing factor, I don't believe it's the contributing factor. Or if it is, I don't... Uh, usually what we tell people to do in this situation is, oh, you need to do some chin tucks. No, well, I don't like those. Well, that's only going to strain the... <laughs> yeah. that's, if, if, you, if you try this at home, folks, just try it. Bring your chin straight back. It hurts. So mm -hmm. why would we force a reversal of a curve that you have? So really what's going on is let's fix the, the posture that's causing the head to become forward in the first place. Okay. So one of the most common uh, mistakes that people will make with posture is that they're using their shoulder blades to create posture. So if we look at the architecture of the body, the shoulder girdle system is a floating system on our rib cage. And if you look at the musculature of that, uh, you'll see that it's it's uh, very similar to our pelvic bone in that it's a flat bone here, a flat bone on the shoulder blade. This is the center of function for the lower body mechanics. This is the center of function for the upper body mechanics. All right. So, however, because they're a floating system, they're not necessarily designed to be the primary driver of posture. And so a lot of cueing uh, patterns go that, oh, in order to fix my posture because I want to be up straight, I'm going to squeeze my shoulder blades together. Well, if you go ahead and squeeze your shoulder blades together right now, you'll feel that your head juts forward right now, right? So if the forward head, if you believe the forward head is the source of the problem, then maybe your posture strategy is one of the drivers of that problem. So the shoulder blades aren't designed to create posture like that. Instead, our core should be creating the posture. And when you find, you'll notice, and I'm, I'll take you through how to do that. So when we fix the core pattern, of posture strategy, you'll notice that the head comes into alignment naturally with the spine. Rather than forcing it abruptly from the head, we're fixing it from the source of the problem, which is your posture strategy. So uh, that's a lot, but I'm happy to go through that posture strategy with yeah, you. Yeah, I like. love it. I love it. Okay. So this is really easy. Let me just put this guy down. 
So if we put one hand up on your chest and the other hand on your belly, take a deep breath in. And you'll feel the rib cage rise. And then when you exhale, you'll feel it go back down again. Okay, so inhale again. Here comes the rib cage, come back up. Now you can exhale all the way, but this time don't let the rib cage fall all the way. It can fall 99.9% .9 of the way, but I want you to keep up one tenth of a percent higher than you normally would. And if you do that, you'll notice that your stomach muscles have just engaged ever so slightly, like a 5%, maybe 10%. So that is your core. And granted, if you look at the, if you Google core muscles, you'll see they are massive. It's a massive amount of muscles and many layers deep. So this is your core holding up your rib cage system for you. That's your posture, right? You'll notice also that the core turned on naturally. You do not have to consciously contract your core to hold up your posture. What you do is just hold up your posture and the core will, su will support that change for you. And also you'll notice that I'm not asking you to hold that rib cage way up because now you're overextending your back to do that and using your back muscles. And then, you know, your, your head's going to come back and it's going to be all achy and, and messed up. We don't need huge changes. We just need a better posture strategy. Now, the second part of this then is to bring the arms down by your sides and jiggle the shoulders around, loosen them up as much as you can. They should be like two dangling ropes by your sides. And you'll notice that when your shoulders are relaxed, you just lost your core activation. And that is because you've tied posture strategy to your shoulders rather than your core, right? So when you've relaxed your shoulders, that means you've lost your core strategy. Well, we need to decouple that relationship, right? We need to, the core, the core muscles to hold up your posture, irregardless of whether the shoulders are relaxed or active. And that's a better posture strategy. And if you have a forward head, you'll notice just by holding that rib cage up just a little bit, that, that it, if your head position hasn't changed, the force that's driving it forward has changed. And now you don't have something pushing your head forward. It's aligning more naturally and in a more relaxed way al along your, your spinal uh, column. So in terms of the um, fascia, uh, if there is like more uh, that collection of the myofibrotic area, um, mm -hmm. are your, do you have any recommendations for fascia type devices or rollers? What are, you, what are your thoughts about that? Or do you feel like once you take the stresses away, some of that extra um, tissue will be reabsorbed? That's exactly what I think. Uh, what you have to do is fix the reason why the myofibroblasts have congregated in certain areas. That's why people all... can roll all they want, but they don't see any changes exactly. because they're not really getting to the root cause. Yeah, you're doomed to rinse and repeat. Yeah. So, you know, you might as well fix the mechanical reasons why. And by the way, also psychological and dietary reasons that are stressing mm. your system, right? Because your body is responding not only to biomechanics, it's also responding to uh, you know, mental stress, emotional traumas, things like that, as well as dietary issues like, uh, you know, you could be allergic to foods, there could be allergens, there could be molds. All of this causes a stress response in your body that seems to be manifested in these fascial patterns. Hmm. And then neurologically, how you're using your body then reinforces these, these fascial tension patterns. So addressing the fascial patterns is a little too late, right? We need to go to the source of the cause of the of the tension pattern in the first place. So someone asked, how important is fascia when reducing pain? And it seems like 
it's a very important part of the expression of pain, but you can't just address fascia itself to reduce pain. Is that what you say? Yeah. Uh, You know, everything is your, there's, what's that book? uh, Your body keeps the score. Yes. Right. Everything is that's occurring in your body is happening for a reason. It's not just, you know, coincidental, right? So again, and you hit the nail on the head, you know, if you just massage the fascia, then I hope you have an appointment every day at your massage therapist, because it's just going to come right back again. If you haven't addressed the reasons it's happening, why is it happening? It's our posture strategy that we just talked about. It's our gait pattern, what we just talked about. It's how you bend. It's how you sleep. It's how you sit at your desk. It's how you exercise. It's part of your genetics. It's part of your mental state. Everything Every, It's a lot. It, right. It's a whole ecosystem. So but, it, this, but it's not that yeah. complicated to solve. I, I. That's what I love is that we can't just say, oh, yeah, do this one stretch. It is complex, but it doesn't have to be complicated in the, in the strategy of solving it. Um, this poor woman asks, what do, you, what do you do when no one can tell you what's wrong so you don't know how to treat it? And I yeah. think that she's not alone. Um, oh, not at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is so what... this is this is what's going on. So uh, in in medical school, not only physical therapy school, but medicine in general, chiropractic, massage therapy, and so forth. Uh, the 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 buzz phrase is that everything has to be evidence based medicine. All right. So in order to create evidence based medicine, you have to be able to isolate aspects of your body to test it and then report a change in that isolated aspect based on what you're testing, all right? This lends itself, so we understand in medicine really great components of our bodies, right? And so that's what makes it to research. And But however, our bodies don't work as components, they work as systems. And so you won't find research on systems thinking because Mm. you can't run a double blind study on a system of movement, right? There's too many variables. Therefore, it doesn't make it to research. And so we in physical therapy school, at least, I'll just speak for physical therapy, we are trained in component thinking. Our goal is to isolate and do testing to isolate the tissues that are damaged, whether it be from you know orthopedic tests, x-rays, MRIs, whatever, that will isolate a tissue that's damaged. And then you'll say, oh, it's your supraspinatus muscle that's damaged. But there are zero tests that tell us why that supraspinatus muscle is damaged. That's a systems approach, is understanding the whys. And so this is why a lot of people aren't getting better, is because they're only being approached from this component thinking, which works great for acute problems, right? Post-surgery, pre-surgery, strains, sprains, tears, broken bones, all sorts of things. Acute you know, co- uh, component thinking is perfect for but this is why we have chronic pain is because it's not working for chronic pain issues. So when you, you know, get a question like, you know, what do you do if, if no one has an answer for you, understand first that it's not that you're broken. It's that everyone is looking at you the same way from this component thinking lens. And so what you have to do is find someone that looks at people from a systems point of view. I saw it all the time in my clinic. I taught all my all my therapists to to look at pain this way, and within six to eight months, all of them became master therapists, could solve anything that walked in the door. Brand new grads, right? 
mm-hmm. within six or eight months because they understood the systems approach to solving pain. So, uh, um, so what I would tell that person is my downloadable home programs are all system solutions to pain and get one of those. And you'll, I think most likely you should be able to solve your pain that way. I love that. And this is a very, very important point. And I think this is where, um, some of us physical therapists are different than others. And there can be even, you know, some tension between that because there's people who only will base their treatment on evidence-based approaches. And that's super limiting. Like you said, it's very component. It's um, research is awesome. It's also subjective. Um, It also, you you know, there's so many things that, uh, that is not present in that. It's just like when say, when people say posture doesn't matter because no research has linked posture with pain, it's like, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, come on. If you've, if you've treated thousands of people, you, you know that it is absolutely related. It is a part of it. You cannot not look at it because it's the, it's the ground stage for all the movement, for the, the um, neurological responses. It's, it's so important. So I, I think this is very crucial is when you're looking for um, a doctor, a physical therapist, any kind of therapist, I would think, they, they need to look at the systems approach, which is like how many parts contribute to this whole, and you can't, ta- you can't just look at the part. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, so many people are left feeling that they're broken or mm-hmm. something's wrong with them, or they've, you know, here's another one, is that, uh, you know, their problem is, is uh, blamed on something that they can't possibly change, right? Oh, well, your core is, t- is too weak. Well, I'm... I, yeah, I've been told by 10 practitioners to do these core exercises. You mean it's still too weak? Oh, yeah, because you're not stabilizing your back because your core is weak. Or, uh, you know, the shape of your spine is wrong. Oh, the, you you got too much curve in your, in, your, in your low back. Or you've got too little curve in your low back. Or you've got an S curve in your low back <laughs> or a C curve. You know, it's blamed on all of these things that you can't possibly change. And that, and so they're left feeling broken, like, oh, this is just what I have to put up with. But no, you can change the forces acting on those curves. Oh, yes. That's yes. what the key is, is to not focus on the shape of your body, but the forces that are acting on your body. And that's what a systems approach does. Ah, I love that. So here's another question. Um, and this was probably from a component approach, but n- maybe not. Still painful shoulder seven months after surgery for impingement. Mm-hmm. What to do? Yeah. Well, I, I can almost guarantee that they have not focused on your scapular mechanics. Mm-hmm. So most therapists will work on the shoulder joint as if the shoulder blade is not part of that joint, right? <laughs> Yeah. There are rules about how and uh, you know, there are rules about how the shoulder blade should be resting and moving. So one of those is that when your arms are down by your side, the spine of the shoulder blade should be resting at approximately thoracic level 2, and this border that's closest to your spine should be about 3 inches from the from your spine. Have your therapist measure those for you, right? Where are you? Now, the whole purpose of the shoulder blade is to assist the arm in overhead movements. And there are rules about how it should be doing that too. So when your arm is up overhead, this should be rotating 60 degrees, right? And I can almost guarantee that if you're having continued impingement, that yours is probably rotating 30 degrees or less. 
The other thing is, is that this part of the acromion should be resting, coming up to the cervical level seven. I can almost guarantee that's not happening. And then this bottom corner of the shoulder blade should be coming to the midpoint of the thorax. I can almost guarantee that's not happening either. Why can I almost guarantee that? Because when the shoulder blade doesn't move well, then the arm bumps up prematurely into the shoulder blade. So if you have continued uh, impingement issues, it means that they're only addressing this part of your motion, not this part of your motion. So you can take this to your therapist, have them look at these things and start getting the shoulder blade to move. And I bet you'll feel so much better as a result. Yeah. I mean, I feel like anybody with any kind of shoulder discomfort, pain, pain impingement, the first thing you look at is the scapula, you know, because it's so it's it's the uh, for people that are listening and not seeing a video, the scapula uh, is on the back ribs, but it has like this little roof that comes over the ball of your shoulder of your, one of, you know, part of your shoulder joint. And so is the scapula not moving well, that, that roof can not give enough space for the ball underneath it. And there's, there's, there's tissues in there. There's bursa, there's, um, ligaments and tendons that get impinged, compressed. And that just yeah. feel, that's what feels really awful. Can I go deeper into a system's yeah, approach please do. this? Yeah. Okay. So understand also that the shoulder blade is resting on the rib cage, yes. right? So what if the rib cage isn't in the right position? And what would be the most common problem fault with the rib cage is that it's resting too low. And that's part of a larger pattern of issues that I call a side bending pattern, where one side of the pelvis is higher, one side of the rib cage is lower, which creates compression on that side of the spine, right? And so this pattern is occurring because of some problem in the same leg in 80 to 90% of the cases. So if you have an old ankle injury on the same side that you're having a shoulder problem, that is how they are connected, is through this side bending pattern, which is then disrupting the position of your shoulder, of your rib cage, which is then setting up the shoulder blade to fail. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's the systems, is you don't just look at the shoulder. You look at like the scapula on the thorax, but the thorax is attached to your, you know, it's coming around your spine and then it comes down to your pelvis and then the le- all of it. And, and the relationship between the stacking of the shoulder girdle on the thorax, the thorax over the pelvis, and then down into the leg. And if, you, if your foot, like, like you mentioned, if you have an old injury, you might've walked a little differently for a while. And that's, that made that part of your, you know, you might've si- done that little side bending that remains even after the injury is healed or the the reason you weren't kind of weight bearing the same way. It's very, it's all fascinating when you go back to those long, long, long ago injuries that people just discount and how that remains somewhere in the, in the brain mapping. Yeah. And I want to reiterate, this sounds complicated. It is not complicated. It is so easy to solve these things, right? Yeah. You I imagine you know you would, yeah. what to do. You, you just would have just to know probably what you're meet, looking at. Yeah. And you, do you meet with people virtually as well? Oh Yeah. I, in yeah. fact, that's I sold my my clinic last year, so one hundred percent of my business is virtual now. Yes, so uh, we'll have your information in the show notes, like <laughs> because my my bet, and I would really like be solid with this bet. I bet if you had some kind of issue that was not being uh, addressed or ha- like hasn't improved working with other people, I bet it would be improved and you know go like. I totally improved working with Rick in a, sh- in a short amount of time. <laughs> yeah. Usually it, it, I, I just need one appointment. 
yeah with most people and and then uh then what i also tell people is you don't even need me right that's why i created these downloadable home programs because the pattern of problems so if you have shoulder pain and someone else has neck pain or someone else has headaches it's all pro- part of the same system of problems it's just manifesting in your body differently you might manifest as shoulder pain and someone else's neck pain the other person is headaches it doesn't mean it's three separate problems it's all the same system of problems it's just manifesting you differently based on your genetics work recreation exercise you know all that kind of stuff stress patterns so forth got so, it so yeah the solution the is, is still systems but it's it's simple so can you talk a little bit about your book like what inspired you to this is you you've written books before How, why did you decide to publish this one and, and in particular these case studies is it to share something again that is similar maybe maybe um you know represented differently or felt differently but the, these these same kind of uh, system breakdowns, so to speak. Yeah, so I, I wrote a series of books about 10 or 15 years ago called the Fixing You series. They're on Amazon. They've been like top sellers. And I've helped, I mean, thousands, I've sold thousands of those things. And I get uh, lots of comments back like, hey, you know, whatever happened to Debbie from that book? Because in each book, th- those books focus more on the anatomy of pain and the biomechanics of pain. And then I have these little tiny, tiny patient stories about how this worked in, in someone. And it's like a paragraph or two, right? And I keep getting questions over the years. Hey, how did this person do? And I really identify with that person. I thought, well, I, I, my, my goal is to really help people understand that this is a whole new way of looking at the body that they have not been looked at before. And so I thought, what if I turn this on its head and made it more about the people and less about the biomechanics, uh, enough about the biomechanics so people understand kind of what we're doing, but more about the people and, and, and they can identify with that. This might be the window in to people understanding what we're talking about. And mm-hmm. so that's why I decided to write this book in, in hopes because some people just don't, you know, they don't like medical terminology. Their, their eyes glaze over when you talk about a muscle or a bone or a yeah. joint. And so that's what this book is for, is those people who have a hard time understanding these kinds of ideas, they can understand them through patient stories instead. Mm. And so my goal is to give people hope that, and I, I hit cro- chronic problems from head to toe in this book. And, and I, I also talk about dietary and emotional issues too. I have those cases in here as well. So uh, it's called Solving the Pain Puzzle, and it's available on Amazon. And uh, so that's what it is, basically. It, it it says cases from 25 years as a physical therapist, but, you know, cases is such a medical term. I know, you know? I know, I know. Right, right. I, I, I would like it if, I, I wish it was just stories, you know, Story, and that's yeah. what this is. And, and I want to give people hope, like your questions are all coming from people who have been looked at from a component thinking. They don't understand that there's a whole other way of doing things out there, you know, and that's yeah. what I hope this book will give people hope to do. I love In fact, that. my dad, my yeah. dad gave my book to a, a friend of his, uh, and the next day she had developed hip pain getting out of a car. She employed the, and I didn't even create the book to do this, right? <laughs> she was happened to be reading the chapter I was talking about hip pain. She's just, I'm just going to try what he's describing. Completely took her hip pain away in about five minutes. Mm. I love <laughs> she it. Says, this... She said it works. I can't believe it. And I was shocked because I was just like, 
I didn't know I put anything in there that was actionable. <laughs> so, uh, so it's nice to know. <laughs> uh, I love that. I think these stories are really important because I think more than anything, and, and I got many more questions, by the way, they're all kind of wrapped in, they're similar, but, you know, a lot of it is the... Um, the fear that pain is not going to go away and there's, and it really makes you, um, feel powerless when, when you have gone and tried to find solutions and it continues. And then I think if anything, that just makes the pain worse because your nervous system is anticipating and having stress around it. So I think that having a book like this, that is probably going to, like hit all the people who continue to ask the question. So if I didn't answer your question, just go to the book because he's hitting, like you said, from from the feet all the way up to the head and everything in between and how pain can be expressed. And know that pain um, is debilitating, but it does not have to be permanent at all. It shouldn't be. You know, a lot of people believe, oh, I've had pain for 20 years. It's going to take me forever. Mm. No. Think of it this way. There, there there's a rock somewhere in your system that no one has found yet that's sitting on something that your body is saying, you've got to move this rock. Yeah, um, this is hurting me. So all you need to do is find that person who understands where that rock is and they're going to move it for you and your pain will go away immediately. So regardless of whether you've had pain for 20 years or 20 days, you remove those barriers and those obstacles and your body will take over the healing process from there. Hmm. Thank you. I love that. I hope this gives everybody out there hope. Uh, please share it with anyone and go check out Rick's new book uh, because it's so worth it. I'll have all the details in the show notes, but thank you so much for sharing these stories. My pleasure, Laura. Thanks for having me on. All right. And for everybody listening, as always, I'm pulling for you. 